What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today we've got a very special show for you because I've got a real-life bat expert, that is, a human expert on bats, and not a bat who's an expert, to talk about some wonderful bat news. The Hills Horseshoe Bat, Rhinolophus hilli, has been feared extinct as neither hair nor wing has been seen for 40 years. They exist only in Rwanda and were critically endangered, so their disappearing act was of great concern. But after a five-year period of survey efforts, in 2019, Bat Conservation International and the Rwanda Wildlife Conservation Association spotted a bat with an incredibly strange-looking face, one suspiciously like the disappeared Hills's horseshoe bat. And after comparing it to museum samples, it was confirmed. The bat that was feared gone forever is still out there. So joining me today to discuss this discovery, to talk about who is this little bat and why it's so important, and to answer some of your questions about bats, is Dr. Winifred Frick, Chief Scientist of Bat Conservation International. Welcome, Dr. Frick. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. So I am so excited. This is such wonderful news. We seem to hear all the time about animals who are endangered or going extinct, and it's so lovely to hear about an animal that has been rediscovered. Oh, absolutely. And it was so incredible to be part of that rediscovery for for exactly that reason, to know that this species is still on the planet, living out its best life in the forests of Rwanda. It's best weird-faced life. (laughs) 
Indeed. So, yeah, let's get to know the subject of the discovery, the Hills's horseshoe bat. So the Hills's horseshoe bat, like many horseshoe bats, is really striking looking. Its face looks kind of like an M.C. Escher painting or like an orchid. Why, why does it look like it has a furry orchid face? And can you give a little bit of a physical description of this bat? Sure. The horseshoe bats have this unusual flap of skin on their faces. It's really evolution of their, their nose. And so they, and they have different sort of complicated sort of folds and wrinkles. And so one of the ways that you identify different horseshoe bats is by looking at the sort of the shape and and size of some of these different sort of folds and flaps. So all horseshoe bats have a unique face and Hills horseshoe bat some of those facial features are really exaggerated. And so they're uh, just, it's, I, I described it as comical. Yeah. <laughs> um, they really do um, look pretty funny, but it's, it's all part of their ability to use echolocation for um, looking for insects out of the night sky. That's really interesting. So how do those folds help enhance their echolocation? Well, you know, they're using sound at night, so they're emitting high frequency sounds and and so they are and then listening for the echoes back and horseshoe bats are what we call a constant frequency bat, so they're um putting out a single pulse at a um at a constant frequency and then listening for the echoes and they actually use doppler shift to be mm. able to do that. And so, yeah, I can't really say exactly how all of the different integral features of their faces help them do that because I personally have a hard time imagining what the sensory world of a bat would really be like (laughs) using sound to perceive its environment. But I imagine that they have a very rich ability to, uh, to perceive their environment that is, is quite different than ours. And, you know, there's this whole myth about bats being blind and, um, far from it. That's actually can, can see very, fairly well as well, but then they have this whole other amazing sensory uh, adaptation using sound. So it's, you know, no, no surprise that their, their faces and their features would look different and be highly um, specialized for the way that they're experiencing their environment. That's so interesting to me that they, yeah, that they perceive the world, not just visually, but through sound and somehow inside their brain, they are creating a map of their surroundings with this sound. It's, it's so hard to think about what that would be like. They have these, you know, large ears that are like really sensitive to be able to, you know, hear the echoes um, back. And if you think about the fact that they're emitting really loud pulses of sound so that they could bounce back and then determine where um, the objects are that the sound's bouncing back from. They have really sensitive hearing and yet they're emitting really loud sounds too. So they also have some really neat adaptations. This is bats, echolocating bats in general, not just Hill's horseshoe bat, of having really rapid acting muscles in their ear bones that can dislocate at the moment that they emit sound and then instantly come back um, in place so that they can listen for that. So there's just so much that's special about the anatomy and morphology of these animals. That is so cool. So they can mute their ears so they don't have to listen to their own sound as they're emitting it, but then turn it back on when they need to perceive yeah. that sound. That's. I wish I had yep. that skill because as a podcaster, someone who has to edit my audio and listen to my own voice, it's 
it's torture. So I (laughs) (laughs) totally, I, yeah. Yeah. I've heard it described as the fastest acting mammalian muscle. So um, I can't remember where I read that, but that's one of my, one of my favorite go-to gee whiz facts about bats. That's incredible. I didn't know that. And that is really fascinating. Speaking of that bat sound, your team also captured the first recording of the Hills' horseshoe bat. And so I'm going to play that right now. So it sounds to me it sounds like someone playing like a penny whistle. It's a it's a very it's a very sweet sound, a very cute sound. Well, and I should clarify too. So that's their echolocation pulse, but slowed way down oh, for us to be able to hear it. So when the bat is out foraging in the forest, um, it's it's echolocating around 30 kilohertz. So well above the normal range of human hearing. Um, so we wouldn't be able to hear it at all. It'd be totally silent to us. And then interestingly, when my colleague, Dr. John Flanders first slowed it down to play the clip, he sent it to me all excited and I couldn't hear it. And I said, there's a problem with the file. <laughs> and it turns out that he just hadn't slowed it down enough for my ears oh, to hear. Right. I can actually hear much above 10 kilohertz, where some people can hear up as high as 15 and or even 20. And so we had to slow it down even further so that, that I'd be able to hear it. <laughs> yeah, there are certain frequencies that only younger ears can hear. And yes. so if you're, if you're like a kid and you want to... Uh, pull a prank on your parents, sometimes you can play a sound that kids can hear and adults can't hear. I've probably been to too many concerts to be able to hear that that bat sound as well. So, but yeah, so that is, that's really interesting. So what do we really know about the Hills' horseshoe bats' behavior? Because we haven't seen them in 40 years. Are they pretty reclusive and hard to know much about, or have we learned anything about them? Yeah, well, there's still lots to learn. What we know, so there's only been two individuals um, prior to our um, expedition in January of 2019. There'd only ever been two individuals described, one in 1964 and another in 1981. And um, both of those individuals were observed in the Uinka region of Nyungwe National Park, which is in southwestern Rwanda, and only eight kilometers apart. And And that's exactly the same spot where we found, we actually captured two individuals on that trip. So from best we can tell, this is a very rare um, species with a very small geographic range that's in the very heart of Nyangwe National Park, basically essentially in one watershed. And so whether they had a larger range historically, you know, unfortunately Rwanda has experienced um, a high rate of deforestation, especially in the 1980s and 1990s. Nyangwe National Park now is um, protected by Rwanda and is really one of the uh, sort of crown jewels of conservation and, and protection in, in Rwanda, which takes its conservation and its wildlife species uh, protections very seriously. But, you know, it seems like this, I mean, this is a, Rwanda is called the land of a thousand hills and it's in this Albertine rift area of Central Africa. So the forest there is really old, meaning that this part of the planet has had this kind of forest for a very long time. Like it didn't experience a change in 
habitat during glacial periods and things. And so what you find in those kinds of situations is really high rates of biodiversity and high rates of endemism because the habitat's been there a long time. So what we think is that this species probably has naturally had a small range. Maybe it was large at one point, but it's lost part of that range due to deforestation. And so there's a small population hanging on in the heart of this really beautiful and protected Afro-Montine rainforest in Rwanda. And so when you say that animals have a high rate of endemism in these forests, that means they're only found in these really old forests. Why, why is it that like when you have a really old region that you tend to find animals who are exclusive to that region and found nowhere else? Yeah, well, so we so it's kind of a combination uh, in that area. You have high biodiversity in the Albertine Rift because that forest is really old, but it's also a very a very mountainous landscape, and so you've got lots of features that could end up sort of allowing species to sort of separate and speciate, and so you end up with and then that's surrounded by habitats that maybe are uh, different. So. Uh, throughout Africa and um, other areas, you know, you we get what we call like sky islands where you get these mountain habitats that are surrounded by a sea of lowland. And that is also lends itself to endemisms, meaning that species occur there and nowhere else. So um, on another project we're working on, the critically endangered Lamotte's roundleaf bat, which is in the Nimba Mountains in West Africa, and it only occurs in that mountain range because that mountain range is isolated and surrounded by a sea of lowland. That's so incredible. I mean, it's it's both really interesting and a little bit frightening to me, this idea that we have species that are very specialized, found in a very tiny range, and we could lose them if we lose these habitats. Like if this if this tiny area where this Hills' horseshoe bat is ever threatened, we would lose not just this bat, but many other species that are probably very highly specialized to this one little region. That's right. And that's why it's so incredible the commitment that we see from Rwanda and the Rwanda Development Board to protect the remaining forest that's there. I mean, Nyangwe National Park is the largest intact tract of Afromontine rainforest left in Central Africa. It's over a thousand kilometers is protected. When you drive from Kigali, which is the capital city of Rwanda, down to Nyangwe, which is in the southwestern corner of the country, it's a small country, but it takes a while to get there and it's really mountainous. And so the whole drive, um, it's incredible to see the, the, the mountainous landscape. And most of that is you know, covered in, in, in agriculture and in, in different kinds of crops, even up these steep hillsides. It's really incredible. And it isn't until you get to the border of Nyangwe that you get to this point where you can look out over the hills and see the landscape draped in this Afromontine forest. And it, it's almost like the, you can just feel the kind of the, <laughs> the mountain sort of breathe. And so it's an incredibly valuable, important area to protect. And, 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 and yet, you know, we don't know necessarily if other species in some of the other areas, we might have already lost them, for right. instance, you know. And I, I want to, you know, I mean, this is a problem the world over that so much of our landscape has been converted to agriculture to grow crops and feed people. And of course, that's super important. But we obviously need to find ways to also be able to do that and support biodiversity. Right, right. And, and the problem with monocultures, even if they are efficient in terms of feeding people, is that 
when you only have one kind of plant, one kind of crop, that's really not conducive to supporting wildlife that may be specialized in feeding on a different kind of vegetation or need some variety in their diet. Yeah. And then in these, in the, um, Yungoy National Park has, you know, many other different species as well. I think it's got the record for the most primate species in Rwanda. Of course, Rwanda is famous for their amazing conservation of the gorillas. And those are up in volcanoes, uh, national parks and Yungoy doesn't have gorillas, but it does have chimpanzees. And I think there's 13 different species of primates in the park too. So Lots of um, different animals call Nyangwe home, and 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 this bat is has a small population there. And you know, we we initially thought that there was a good chance it was roosting in caves because lots of different rhinolophus species live in caves. Um, and so we were working with the Nyangwe Park Rangers to identify the different caves that might be in the park, and uh, they did. And some incredible work before we got there to um, on all of their patrols, you know, documenting the location of different caves and whether they'd seen any sign of bats there. And so a big part of our effort while we were there was actually surveying some of those caves. Um, and we we found evidence of other species uh, there, um, other bats, but not Hills Horseshoe Bat. And as best we can tell now, um, it seems like it's probably a tree roosting bat. So that speaks even more to the importance of the forest. Well, even even bats that roost in caves need forests because right. they need places to, to to forage. I mean, it is it is interesting because I think people do have this concept that all bats live in caves are uh, cave cave dwellers, and indeed there are a lot of species of bats that do live in caves. But there are a lot of arboreal bats, uh, and just like an incredible diversity of bats that all have sort of their own ecological niche that they inhabit. That's right. About 40% of, of bat species roost in caves, but trees are probably the most important resource for bats around the world. And we should remember too, you know, there's um, over 1400 different species of bats uh, on planet earth. And so when we talk about bats, sometimes people forget that there's just so much diversity yes. and there's lots of different ways of making a bat living out there. Yeah, it's one of the most diverse groups of of mammals that I know I know of. It's it's just th- in terms of their morphology and how many different kinds of like there are insectivores, there are frugivores, nectarivores, just it seems like every sort of little area where they could specialize in, they they will do that. Yeah, I mean, flight does amazing things for giving you the chance to being able to uh, get around the planet and also specialize into different niches. Um, yeah, the only they're the second most diverse group of mammals. So rodents have the most species, and then bats are are in second place in terms of number of species on the planet. That's really amazing. So, I mean, you don't have to convince me or probably my listeners because I love bats. My listeners love bats. This is basically, even though we talk about all sorts of animals, this is a bat fan club here. But why is it so important to keep track of these rare species of bats and maintain their populations? Because because there are so many different species of bats. What do we lose when a particular species is endangered or goes extinct? The loss of a species is in some ways, just existential in terms of um, what it means. I mean, we know that we share the planet with other 
other organisms and that um, biodiversity writ large is incredibly important. Um, I think that over and over again, we've been able to quantify and document the value of biodiversity to humans. Um, I like to talk about the values that beyond what, what species do for us, right? Bats in general provide incredible ecosystem services to humans and to the planet, right? So they're incredibly important consumers of uh, agricultural pests in terms of their insectivorous bats, um, bats that pollinate, uh, nectivorous bats are really important pollinators for a variety of different plants, some of which have commercial value to human economies but in also are really important for maintaining uh, rainforests. See, bats that eat fruit and disperse seeds have been shown to have really important value to rainforest regeneration. Uh, they tend to like uh, trees that are good pioneer species like figs. And so, and they fly long distances so they can drop seeds places. And um, so there's, there's a, a strong body of work that shows um, and puts actual dollar amounts. It's been estimated in the United States that, insectivorous uh, bats provide in the billions of dollars to the U.S. agricultural industry. And researchers in Thailand have um, estimated the value of a common retail bat that lives there in terms of the amount of predation it does on rice pests and, and calculated the number of the increased yield due to bat predation um, of that rice crop pest. And um, I think even put it in terms of how many bags of rice per year um, the bat uh, provides. Oftentimes when we talk about ecosystem services, though, that that's being provided um, by bats that are highly abundant. Right. And those are super important to protect. And so your question <laughs> was about the value of these rare bats. So what is the value of this rare species that's living in the forest of, in one little area of one forest uh, in Rwanda. Well, I'd say that it's a part of that forest ecosystem. It has, in my view, a right to live there. <laughs> it's certainly, as we've seen from the interest in this rediscovery, it certainly has value in terms of its ability to capture our attention and fascination and, and, and make us take a moment and think about who we are mm -hmm. and what our role is in that sense of awe and that sense of fascination and that sense of respect. I think it's hard to quantify, mm -hmm. but is real. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think it is, it is an important thing because I, I do talk often about like the importance of animals to the world and to humans in terms of the sort of this tapestry of interactions that help support the planet, which we live on, so we need. But I think there is something that is more philosophical about preserving species and making sure they're still out there. Bear survival is is great in terms of, you know, the human experience, but we also enjoy things like art, and even if it doesn't necessarily, like we can't quantify what exactly art does for us. But I think it's a similar thing with, with species. Like here's something that has 
evolved over millions of years and here it is still alive like this live it's it's a living it's all it's kind of almost goes beyond art i don't know how else to describe it but it's this this right. living intricate uh work of of natural beauty and art and it's i think there's something like when you hear about one of these species like you said being rediscovered it inspires so much hope because we hear so much about the planet dying and, and all of these issues which are very important to talk about but i think it is just as important to talk about the animals that can be saved and who are still out there and that you know there is there is hope for uh animals and for humans because sometimes with all of the doomsday news it feel, i think people sometimes get the sense like there's no point in trying anymore everything's doomed but that's really not true. We have so much, so much ability to preserve species and to learn, find, discover things that we thought maybe uh, there was no hope for. Like the fact, I, I mean, again, like that we didn't, weren't able to see these guys for 40 years and your team found them. It's, it is really inspiring. I feel that way. I mean, it's hard to describe the, the feeling of, of being there and, and the incredible sense of both privilege and how humble to realize that we had the opportunity of a being able to be there in that incredible landscape and, and have the opportunity to see such a rare species and, and also be there with our, with our, with our colleagues from Rwanda and, and Dr. Paul Wabala from Kenya and, and Prince Kaleme from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I mean, we had this, this team of, of, of people and the sense of um, excitement and connection. And so I couldn't agree more that, you know, hope is, uh, hope is not lost. <laughs> hope is essential to, um, to what we do. Um, it is a, there is a, a, a real sort of weight to the world right now with climate change and the biodiversity crisis and the strife that we're witnessing around the world. I think that there are lots of reasons to hope and that one of, one, of, one of the things that I've noticed is that we can, we can get into this sort of paralysis of, um, of feeling like the problems are just too big to solve. And, you know, I've tried really hard to think through I mean, part of my job at Bat Conservation International is to identify and, and prioritize what are the sort of most important projects for us to be working on. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it, you can have this moment of paralysis of like, well, it's all important. And where do you start? And, and so you, you really do have to, you know, kind of roll up your sleeves and say, I'm, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to do what we can in the places where we've got the best opportunity to make a difference. And, and there's lots of tools out there for us in terms of conservation evidence and, you know, prior to the conservation standards and lots of really smart people on this planet are, are working, you know, really hard to find the ways to give us the best chance of success to do conservation. Well, at the end of the day, you got to get out there and you, you got to you know do the work and, you know, collaborate with people and, and, and then when you have those moments where that hard work pays off and you're standing in the forest and you see a bat that 
looks really weird and nobody's <laughs> seen for 40 years. It is, you know, it's, it's nothing short of incredible. And then you get to let it go again <laughs> and it flies back out into the forest and it doesn't know yeah. that it's like super rare and that nobody's seen it for 40 years. Like it's just been doing its thing. And it's, and so there's also the sense of responsibility of going to make sure that it can continue to do that and and that it's got that watershed and it's got that forest to keep living out its its best life like i said that's so wonderful i will have pictures of this bat in the show notes uh, or you can google the hills's horseshoe bat and but its face is just it's incredible and it, there's something i mean there are there are a lot of beautiful animals but to have because it has like these these folds and flaps on its face, and I assume the the horseshoe name comes from these like horseshoe like folds. It has, yeah, the horseshoe shape to its nose. Yeah, that look goes down and like make it looks like a chin almost. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's it's you just want to ask like, do you know you're so fascinating looking, or are you just you you know do you want do you understand how like we're just captivated by your face and. The fact we haven't seen you in 40 years, and but no, it probably flies off and go, goes off to find another another bug to eat. It, it's an insectivore, right? It is, is for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we are going to talk more about bats with Dr. Frick. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients. Their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. So we're back and I, I think we are, we're amongst bat lovers right now, probably people who are listening to the show, I would imagine are bat lovers, but a lot of people are somewhat afraid of bats or 
uh, are worried about uh, certain misconceptions that they like. I think a lot of people may have the misconception that most bats are like vampire bats, despite the fact that, in fact, those are the least common species of bats and are vastly outnumbered by every other type of bat in the world. Um, and they're so people think, oh, a bat's going to try to bite me or suck my blood. Um, uh, but there are also fears about bats transmitting diseases like rabies. Um, so what uh, should people who have a fear of bats uh, know about them? There's really no reason to fear bats. There, um, most people won't have the uh, opportunity or pleasure to get to see bats ever, which is almost a shame because they're incredible. If you get a chance to ever see a bat up close, you would quickly see that they have, and you can Google images on the internet, I guess, um, and see their their faces. Some bats look, you know, unusual, like our Hills horseshoe bat. Um, and that's due to their interesting adaptations for their nocturnal lives. You know, the flying foxes in particular are, are, are pretty heart melting in terms of, um, you know, big eyes. They don't echolocate <laughs> in, you know, kind of standardly cute faces. There um, are videos of flying foxes, babies who are in a rescue eating grapes and bananas. And it's, it's the most heart melting thing you can see. Yes. I think that some people call them sky puppies. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, there's really not much to fear that, you know, bat, bats have gotten a bad rap for a variety of different associations. I think, you know, things that are associated with being nocturnal sometimes, you know, activate sort of different kinds of fears, you know, and then, you know, their vampire bats obviously are a, a very interesting, uh, there's only, I think there's what three species of vampire yeah. bats, yeah. the 1400 and um, they have amazing adaptations because they are sanguinivorous, which mm -hmm. is the fancy word for they feed on blood. Um, but they don't suck, actually. Right. They have like sharp teeth and they make a little nick and then they lap up the very surgical, the delicate. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point that got all conflated with, you know, um, vampire uh, mythology, even though vampire bats live in uh, central uh, in South America, not anywhere near Transylvania and <laughs> Europe. But, and then the other thing, you know, to know is that, you know, like a lot of, uh, wild mammals, uh, bats can be a natural, um, uh, reservoir for rabies. They can carry rabies virus, which, you know, is deadly in, in humans. So if you, um, had the misfortune of, you know, getting bit, bitten by a bat, you should definitely go, mm -hmm. uh, to the hospital and get your post-exposure rabies vaccine. Cause if you contract the disease, then it's, it's fatal, but there's, you can get the shots and it will boost your immune system and, and you, you, you'll be fine. So one of the reasons why bats are so associated with rabies is that it's so the incidence of rabies and bats isn't necessarily that much higher than in some other types of uh, mammals like raccoons or skunks, but the chance that it, a, a, a person in the, in the public comes across a bat might be if it's on the ground outside right. their garage or something. And the chance that there's something wrong with that bat, that that bat is sick is, is relatively high because it wouldn't be there if it was healthy. So yeah. somebody like me, who's out um, capturing bats in their wild environments, you know, most bats are healthy and fine. Um, everybody who works with bats does have pre-exposure um, shots for rabies, but there's no reason to necessarily be scared right. of them 
So you, you should know what the public health guidance is that if, you know, you come in contact with the bat and it's best not to touch it with bare hands, right. better to call an animal, re, you know, rescue, but it's not like bats are out looking to um, <laughs> harm us. So. No, no. Yeah. I mean, there's only, and I think out of the three vampire bat species, there's only one who's ever been even recorded uh, having eaten human blood. And it's usually someone who's like near, because they're, they're, it's the hairy legged bat. And they're adorable, by the way, the cutest little faces. And, but their main source is chickens. So if someone is, you know, lives on a chicken farm and is near these chickens, it might, it may just be sort of an, not an accidental, but sort of an incidental thing happening. And so it's, so they really don't, they don't, but they don't hunt humans. They don't seek out humans specifically. No, yeah, vampire bats don't hunt humans, and they occur in central you know, Mexico down through South America. But yeah, it's not the perception of that is way overblown from the reality. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. The other the other vampires are specialized on birds and 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 most vampire bats feed on cattle. Yeah. Um, uh, nowadays so yeah yeah and it's and it, they don't even it's not necessarily even uh too much of a threat to the cattle other than you know a little a little cut they do on their ankles but there it could be well but a, they can't transmit they yeah. Can, yeah they can transmit rabies it is actually there's some economic cost to rabies transmission of, of livestock um that's a whole nother <laughs> another topic but um you know luckily we have vaccines and yeah um Vaccines are highly effective against uh, rabies. You know, another another misperception is that, you know, bats will like fly into your hair right. and all that kind of silliness. You know, I think one of the things that about bats is that, you know, they're they're flying at night and they fly erratically. And the reason why they fly erratically is because they're really agile flyers and they're looking for insects out of the night sky. And the um, and so when you see a bat sort of fluttering and flipping around and looking like it's, you know, uh, doing some crazy dance move. It's because it's, um, honing in on an insect and then actually catching that insect with, it has a, 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 a membrane of skin between its hind legs mm -hmm. and it uses it like a, like a catcher's like a net. net. Yeah. And then, it, and then it, you know, um, finds the insect with its mouth. So it does this like, you know, quick little duck where it then, you know, get, grabs the insect with its feet or its tail membrane and then folds up and grabs it. And, and so that will cause the, the bat to look like it's flying sort of out of control. And so if you were watching that and, 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 you know, the, it's at dusk and you can't really see them very clearly. And so I think some of that erratic flight and um, the fact that you can't quite picture what it looks like right. might play into some, some people feeling scared or something. But it, if you take a moment and realize that there's no, it's not at all threatening to you. Yeah. And that they're, you know, cleaning up all the insects out of the sky around yeah. you, then it's actually beautiful to watch. And then the other thing is that sometimes people will find um, bats like up in crevices on on uh, the sides of houses or something. And and so, you know, I don't know if you know if you can't see them clearly or something, and they look kind of tucked up in there. Um, I, you know, I, there's no reason to be scared of them, but that's the other way that people will kind of experience bats. Right. Uh, Maybe kind of like you're not expecting to see them and you're kind of startled. Yeah. But there's really no reason to be scared. And they're, they're really, and the more you learn about them, the more fascinating in terms of just 
their ability to, like we were talking earlier, like use sound to perceive their landscape, their um, eating insects um, and uh, provide, you know, lots of services. And they're cute. <laughs> and like, yeah, and the, you know, the nectar feeding bats that like slurp up nectar, they have, you know, long tongues and they're important pollinators. And yeah, they're, they're very cool. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients. Their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. So that actually leads me into some of our listener questions. And uh, so Whitney asks, why do some bats have smooshed noses and others little adorable snouts? So bat faces, like we've talked about, are really diverse. I know that face shape has to do with different dietary and hunting methods. Uh, Depends on whether the bat uses echolocation or not. But it's interesting because it seems like there's not sort of one rule, like you only have a long snout if you're a nectar- nectarvore um, or you only have a, because like it seems that there are bats who have short faces who are frugivores and also long faces that are frugivores. So you'll have flying foxes who have r- relatively long snouts that are frugivores, but then you'll have leaf-nosed bats who also eat fruit who have shorter faces so it seems that the, these face shapes, sorry, these face shapes are highly specialized. So maybe a shorter faced, a shorter faced bat who is a fruit eater maybe eats harder fruit. So it has like a more of a mechanical advantage with its jaw shape. Um, but uh, and you know, like we discussed with the Hills's horseshoe bat, that incredible face helps it in terms of echolocation. So there are some bats that have 
pointed faces or at least like a pointed kind of like nose flap that may help direct echolocation. And so there are so many different factors that you have with these bats in terms of both their their diet, how they perceive the world in terms of whether they're using echolocation and very specifically, like what kinds of foods in their diet they eat. Are they eating hard fruit? Are they eating softer fruit? Are they eating nectar? And so, uh, you know, but as a, as a bat ecologist, you must have seen like so many different <laughs> types of bat faces, which I'm so astounded by, like how many different faces, face shapes that they have. And so in your experience, like, is there, is there an easy answer to like the smooshed face versus longer face? I think you gave a great answer. You're, you're totally spot on that it has, uh, it has everything to do with diet. And it has a little bit, well, it has everything to do with diet and also your family tree. So in the neotropics, so in central, in the Americas, there's one family of bats called the phylostomidae, and they are um, the leaf nose bats. And so they have this very characteristic little, you know, leaf nose that has this little leaf flap of skin. And so that's um, a trait of that whole family. And then within that family um, is where we actually see an amazing adaptive radiation of diet diversity in bats. So most of um, most of bats are uh, in the ancestral state of bats are insectivorous um, and echolocating. And so all of the amazing diet diversity that we think of is mostly contained in the phylostomidae. So not counting the flying foxes and, and teropid bats of, of the old world. So all the nectar feeding bats, the frugivorous bats, so much of the diet diversity that we see is in that day family. So the nectar feeding bats, the and, and frugivorous bats, even the and vampire bats are in that, in that family. Um, and there's also insectivorous species in that family as well. And so some of that, you know, the, um, the nose leaf anyway, is a characteristic of that family. And then you also have bats in the old world in a different family. Uh, so like we were talking about the horseshoe bats, they have different kinds of adaptations and that characteristic no, uh, a horseshoe shaped, uh, nose, uh, feature is at the family level. And then the round leaf bats, which are in the Hippocyteridae family, um, also have a very characteristic nose leaf shape that is a characteristic of that family. So part of it is your, you know, your family tree. And then, and then part of it is, is your diet, uh, and, and what you're eating. There's some great colleagues of mine who actually study the, um, bite force of different bat species and looking at that bite force relative to the kinds of foods that they eat. So the things that you were talking about in terms of you know, the hardness of the fruit and whether you're primarily drinking nectar or kind of uh, doing both nectar and fruit or just eating fruit. Um, all of those things will come into play in terms of your face shape and face features. That's, that's really cool. I just, I love that they have, they express so much personality through their faces and it really does. It is kind of an indicator of these like very different, interesting lives that they all lead. And of course, the flying foxes that don't echolocate have really big eyes. Yeah, that makes sense. They're not using sound to to hunt hunt for prey right. or, or find flowers. They're using both um, vision and smell. So the also 
usually have like larger noses because they're using other senses. Yeah. And that's what makes them sky puppies. <laughs> yes. So friend of the show, Sean Baby on Twitter asks, my kid and I love a video where Australian bats dive bomb a crocodile infested river to get their tummies wet so they can suck the water out later. Are they anomalies or do all bats drink like total maniacs? So <laughs> one of the reasons that bats actually dive bomb sources of water, whether they're going to get their bellies wet or to like take little sips, basically scoop up some water with their mouths, is that they cannot stop and land near water. Not only would it make them a prime target for predators, uh, it is almost, it's also very difficult or impossible for most species of bats to take off directly from the ground. So most bats typically will go into flight by dropping down from a perch and uh, flying. They don't real. it's not like a bird where they often will take off from the ground. Now, there are notable exceptions to that. Uh, I believe some species of vampire bats and certain insectivores are able to kind of do a running hop thing and get off the ground and take off into flight. But uh, Dr. Frick, do you know, like, what is sort of the typical method for bats to drink water? Yeah. So most bats will drink on the, what we call drinking on the wing. And so you, they'll fly down and they won't necessarily dip their bellies, but they'll just lap at water as they, as they fly. Most bats need to drink, uh, free, drink water. Um, there are some like desert adapted bats that can get water from their diet, but then don't need access to standing water, but water's really important for most bats. In fact, um, if you've ever worked in the desert as a bat biologist, you just, you know, just how important it is. Cause that's the, one of the best places to catch bats is to um, put up your mist nets over a water hole. And bats will also be attracted to water to hunt for insects too, that a lot of, a lot of insects emerge um, from water where they, there's a larval stage uh, of the insect in the water. And then they'll come up to the surface and, and basically emerge in the flying form will take off and bats are looking for those emergent aquatic insects and will scoop those up actually with their feet off of like an osprey hunts for fish. And so that's, you may see bats going over uh, water and they may not necessarily just be drinking. They may also be foraging for insects. So you're right that there are some species that can't take off from the ground, but I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd characterize that most species can't take off mm, from okay. the ground. I'd actually say that not being able to take off from the ground is probably more of the exception than the rule. Oh, really? Okay. And, and certainly some species are much better at it than others. Um, vampire bats are particularly good at sort of hopping and levitating up off, um, <laughs> Ground pallid bats that hunt scorpions on the ground are also really good at taking off. A lot of we look at the foraging um, sort of strategies of bats based off of their wing shapes, and bats that have broad wings are really maneuverable and they're more likely to be able to kind of take off, whereas bats with narrow uh, wings are more adapted for fast, high flying things like the Mexican freetail bat or other free tail bats, and they have a harder time taking I off see. from the ground. But, I see. Um, but you're, but you're absolutely right that it, it doesn't, if you've got the advantage of flight. It doesn't make a lot of sense to land and crawl up to the surface of the water. And a lot of bats are already, you know, foraging for insects. And so the ability to just take a sip on the wing yeah. um, is a much better strategy. A drink for the road 
or the skies. I like that phrase though to like drink like maniacs. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna use that. <laughs> And that was Dr. Winifred Frick, Chief Scientist of Bat Conservation International. And that was the tale of the rediscovered Hills's horseshoe bat, once thought to be extinct, but is in fact still flapping around. So before we go, we've got to play a round of your favorite animal podcast game, Guess Who's Squawkin'? Every week I play a mystery animal sound, and you guess who's making that sound. So last week's hint is you may find these little dudes boogieing to an imaginary beat, but it's probably for the prey that lies deep beneath their feet. Can you guess who's squawking? Well, congratulations to Joey P, Ozzy, and Trish H, who all correctly guessed it was the sound of the American woodcock. So the American woodcock, aka the timber doodle, is a small bird found in North America. While it's technically a shorebird related to sandpipers, woodcocks live in forested areas. With a long wedge-shaped beak, brown bark-like plumage, and compact egg-shaped frame, it is a serious cutie with a serious appetite for worms. Woodcocks rock back and forth as they hunt for worms, which biologists speculate may be a way for the birds to scare the worms into moving, which makes them easier to feel with their feet and catch. The male woodcock tries to woo females with their distinctive paint sound that they make during mating season. They will also fly high up into the sky and zoom back down to earth in a serpentine pattern to try to dazzle potential mates with their death-defying stunts. As mating season tends to be in the spring, if you live near forested habitats in Atlantic Canada, the east coast of the U.S., or in the Midwest, you may just see a male woodcock doing his sky dance. So, on to this week's mystery animal sound. The hint? Don't jump to conclusions with this sound. Can you guess who's making that sound? If you think you know the answer, write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at creaturefeetpod. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. Or at Katie Golden, uh, where I write my Katie thoughts. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you leave a rating or review, I will deeply appreciate it. I read all the reviews and I love them and I cherish them. And thanks so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.